You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Hey, it's a, it's a real honor to be with you guys here today, and uh, I, don't think, I don't think it could have been planned better to follow up on what Dr. Moeller just shared uh, than to take a few minutes and, and reflect on the life and the work of Isaac Watts. Um, a little background on me, I was one of the founding uh, pastors at Sojourn Church when we planted here in the city in, in the year 2000 and uh, oversaw Sojourn Music and between the years of about 2000, I think it was probably about 2007 and 2010, we did this thing called the Isaac Watts Project where we dug into the hymns of Isaac Watts and uh, we set, set many of them to new melodies, we reworked some of them, we wrote some songs inspired by them. And in the process, I really dug into the life of Watts and was, was incredibly moved by his story. Uh, he, he's well known for the, the songs that you're probably familiar with, are, you know, when I, when I Survey the Wondrous Cross, or Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past, or Joy to the World. Um, less familiar is that he, he did translations of the in, pretty much the entire Psalter, uh, and he wrote some children's songs, which frankly have more content than most of our modern praise songs. Um, I'm not joking, they're, they're incredible. Um, and he has songs that you've probably never heard, like Terrible God, because they don't quite translate. Um, we didn't do anything with that one, though actually someone did write an arrangement of it that didn't fly. So, so, so I'm here today to talk to you about Watts, not just because he's a, he's a brilliant poet and because he was a brilliant pastor, um, but he's, he's also an incredible model for pastoral leadership and for contextualization, which might sound surprising. To understand how he's a model for contextualization, you have to know his story. He was born in 1674, and when he was born, his father was in prison. He was in prison for being part of the nonconformist movement, which was essentially a movement that was rebelling against England's control of the church and England's regulation of the church's worship. Uh, the nonconformists believed in the centrality of the scriptures. They believed in essentially sort of local church autonomy. They thought that pastors should be able to discerningly lead their own congregations in preaching and in prayer and in worship. Watts' dad was particularly in trouble because he was a deacon at this church and he was the landlord that was renting the property to the church for their, for their gathering spaces. So he was locked up for a few years. Watts himself grew up, they were, he was in Southampton, uh, grew up in Southampton, went to London, studied theology there, came back to Southampton, and, and when he returned home, he was attending church with his family and their local congregation. And, and at the time, these nonconformist churches and most of the English-speaking churches, they were singing these, uh, what they call metric psalms, which are, uh, they were, you know, essentially a literal translation of the psalms, and they were done in a, in a metered poetry that was designed to be singable. And they were, they were kind of clunky. They were, you know, because of being constrained by the text and being constrained by the, by the rhythm, uh, they were kind of clunky, and, and Watts didn't like them. And so he went to his father afterwards, and he, he basically said, look, there's two problems with these, um, with these things. First off, they're not beautiful. They're not compelling because the poetry's bad. And second of all, they're not Christ-centered. We're singing all these songs, and we're not singing about Jesus. And so his, his father kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, look, see if you can do any better. And Watts did. And what we get from him is an incredible gift. Again, when I survey the wondrous cross, oh God, our help in ages pass. Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Uh, I sing the mighty power of God, which was one of those children's songs. 
He began his project, though, focusing exclusively on the Psalms. And what he, what he did was he said, if we're going to sing the Psalms, if that's kind of the constraint of the Reformed Church, um, then let's sing them in a way that makes them clear and Christ-centered. And so here's, here's what he did. He translated these Psalms, and when they were published, he kind of described his methodology. This is from his introduction to the, to the Psalms. He says, where the psalmist speaks of the pardon of sin through the mercies of God, I have added the merits of a savior. Where he talks of sacrificing goats or bulls, I choose to mention the sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God. Where he promises abundance of wealth, honor, and long life, I have changed some of these typical blessings for grace, glory, and life eternal, which are brought to light by the gospel and promised in the New Testament. And I am fully satisfied that more honor is done to our blessed Savior by speaking his name, his graces, and his actions in his own language according to the brighter discoveries he has now made than by going back to the Old Testament language of types and figures. So just to clarify that, what he's done is if you look at Watts' Psalms, any place where there's a mention of the king or any, any place that there's a mention of uh, the, sort of the bloodline of David and all of this, he goes out of his way to, to tie it to Jesus, to make sure that we are singing the name of Jesus. And anywhere in the Psalms where it's talking about the enemies of Israel and it's talking about uh, physical enemies and physical threats, he translates those to talk about Satan, sin, and death and the oppression that believers face in a fallen world. And, and all of this he does while, while translating these in, in, in poetry that's just astoundingly good. Astoundingly good and astoundingly clear. He wanted to give the Psalms to the church in such a way that when they read them and when they sang them, they saw the face of Jesus. And at the time when this was done, this was a scandal. This was a, this was a massive scandal and, and it created a, a, a great deal of division in the English church because he's messing with the Bible. This isn't a literal translation anymore. He's, he's messing with things. And it created a movement. It created the rise of English hymnody. Eventually, he went beyond the Psalms and began writing uh, more directly Christ-centered hymns and gave birth to a movement that has given us some of the greatest English hymns, uh, greatest hymns in the English language. So what, what can we learn from the work and the life of Isaac Watts. There's a few things I want to pull out. The first is that by focusing on the Psalms, and this comes back to something Dr. Muller was just saying, but by focusing on the Psalms, we're equipped with this incredibly wide and incredibly deep kind of language for our worship. The, the Psalms give us this range, this full range of human emotion, the heights of joy and the depths of despair and of suffering. And so by giving the Psalms to the church in this way, and by giving them to them with the language of Christ at the center of them, he, he shows us how to bring our entire lives before God. And not just to bring our entire lives before God in sort of our private experiences, but as the church gathered, we gather and we sing these things and we declare these things. And, and when you gather with the church and you're suffering, and you, you sing a song that expresses that suffering, not only does it give you life and give you joy because you're opening your heart to God, but you have this incredible solidarity because you're doing it with brothers and sisters who are raising their voice with you and who are praying that prayer with you and who are seeking that hope with you. John Whitfleet has this wonderful phrase that, that he uses. He talks about soul food for the people of God. There's an article by that name that's, that's worth looking up. And he essentially says, we, we need to do an inventory of the songs that we're singing, and we need to, to just very concretely 
almost like write it down, list it out. What songs are we singing? What range do they cover? How much emotional breadth and depth do we have in what we do? And I think most of the, most of the time when I've worked with churches and we've, we've done this sort of thing, what comes to the surface is, is often surprising. We all have our hobby horses, theologically and, and otherwise, that we like to go back to. And of course, the, the cliche that is utterly true is that in modern worship, there's pretty much one thing that we like to do, which is to, which is to celebrate. When I was just making a comment backstage, it was, it's like North Korea in 30 Rock, always sunny, all the time, always. So, so Watts shows us a model for having wide and deep worship language. The second thing is that he gives us, he gives us a model for, for contextualization that makes clear that when we're talking about how do we contextualize worship, this is about comprehension. This is about clarity. A lot of times when people talk about, you know, use that language of we want to contextualize the gospel, what they're actually saying is we want to make sure that all of our cultural expressions look like the neighborhood around us. And, and there's nothing wrong if that happens. There's nothing wrong with our cultural expressions blending in, but that's not the goal. The goal is to articulate timeless truth in a way that these people in this particular time and this particular place can understand what's coming out of our mouths. Tim Keller once said that the goal of contextualization is actually to make the offense of the gospel clear to the unbeliever. And what Watts did, uh, for sure, is he made things clear, he made things compelling, he made things beautiful, but at no point did he water them down. Uh, in his translation of Psalm 22, he actually says, all the nations of the earth shall worship or shall die. There's no pandering in that verse. At the same time, though, what's important to see is the courage that he had, the courage that it took to, to go against the tradition and to ruffle feathers and to say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pioneer into new territory here because the gospel isn't clear and people aren't hearing it and people aren't singing it. Another thing we see in Watts' work is that worship needs to be concerned with both beauty and with truth. And I think in, in any given context, in any given church, we tend to gravitate towards one or the other of us. There are, there are truth people, and here at a conference named Doxology and Theology, this is clearly a truth people room. Um, and then there are, there are people on the other end of spectrum who, who value beauty so much that they're willing to, to sacrifice truth for the sake of beauty. Watts' demonstration is that both matter and that both are worthy of our time and investment. At one end of the spectrum, beauty, creativity, inspiration. On the other end of the spectrum, truth and conviction. The, the problem, with, the problem was, with, is this, and this is the way we've got to begin to sort of reconcile this. Worship is an experience for whole persons, and, and whole people are heads and their hearts and their bodies. And so worship, when we come together, we bring our hearts, we bring our imaginations, we bring our emotions to the table. And we also bring our minds and we bring our, ration, you know, our rationality, our reasonable uh, capacity to the table. And so the problem is that if we think we've just got to get the truth right, if we can just get the truth to people and we leave their affections unstirred, that part of their lives is still looking for a place to find that expression. People want their imaginations moved and they need their imaginations moved. And the scriptures give us stories and poems and images throughout the text that move our imaginations and move our emotions. And so if we neglect that part of the human experience, if we don't speak to emotions, if we don't speak to imaginations, then the heart is still gonna be looking for it. 
And there's plenty of places in this world that are reaching them with, at that level, at the level of affection. And of course, the problem with, with, with an emphasis on creativity at the expense of truth is that, is that our, options, our options there get limited after a while, right? So, so imagine this, imagine that you have you know, an, an, an unlimited budget, an unlimited set of resources to, to put on the laser light show and the virtual reality, and you know, there was, I saw there, there's a church using holograms on stage now. You know, you've got the unlimited resources to do every sort of high production thing that you can do to get people excited and to get to people amped. And you're raising up disciples in this church, and then one day somebody who's been raised up in this church and is like every Sunday is gung-ho sitting on the front row, this thing really speaks to them, they get transferred to a secular global city where there's not a Bible-believing church, or if there is, it's 12 people gathering in an apartment. Now how have you as a pastor and as a ministry equipped them for that experience? Where all the lights, you know, Bart Simpson's great quote about contemporary worship, where the light, smoke, and Tybo are gone. <laughs> And it's just them in a community of people with the Bible. And so the, the fact is that both of these things matter, and both of these things can be good, and both of these things can be formative. But if we sacrifice one for the sake of the other, then we leave incomplete Christians, and we send incomplete Christians out into the world, whether we're sending them into secular cities or we send them to the countryside where the resources just simply aren't the same. So Watts' example is compelling to me because he, he gives us breadth and he gives us depth. He strives for contextualization that makes the gospel clear both in, its, both in its bad news and in its good news. And because he was concerned with both beauty and with truth. And at the heart of all three of these things is this reality that, that worship leading as pastors, as, as church musicians, worship leading is, an, is a pastoral task. And what we do when we gather takes us up to the brink of life and death. There's a, a story, some of you may have heard me tell this story before, I tell it too much, but it's really important to me. There was this day where I was leading worship at, at, at Sojourn, and uh, I remember looking out on about the third row, there was this amazing collection of people, these three people sitting just a few seats away from each other. On the aisle was a girl who uh, had had a baby just a few months before, three or four months before. And, you know, within a few weeks of this particular Sunday, she'd been diagnosed with a, uh, stage four cancer. She was in bad, bad shape. A few seats away from her was a, a good friend of my wife and I's who's a, uh, who's a surgeon. She's this brilliant surgeon, the youngest endowed chair of a surgical department in the country, lauded, you know, brilliant. And uh, that week she'd lost a couple of patients on the table. And we'd had her and her husband over and just kind of processed that and wept with them and felt that burden. And then a few seats away from her is another woman who'd been baptized a, a few weeks prior to this. She's about 40 years old. And prior to coming to our church, she'd spent 20-something years in the sex industry here in the city. And so you have these three people in these deep moments of you know, suffering and crisis throughout their lives. And they're sitting there on a Sunday morning, and they're, they're, they've gathered with us to worship. And, and as I saw them, I, I thought of this quote that John Whitbleet said, where he said, the goal of our practice as worship leaders and pastors is to prepare people for their encounter with death. And, and the work of Isaac Watts, I think, is a brilliant example of that. It's unflinching in the face of suffering and darkness 
And it gives that, that aspect of life, that, that tragic side of life to people, but it gives it to them in a way that points them to their hope that extends beyond death. And that's the goal of worship. The goal of worship is to give people a clear gospel, a compelling gospel, and a gospel that's our only comfort in a fallen world. So I think about those three faces, and I think when we gather, how am I prepared to give them language for their experience when they come to church with us? I think that's all of our goals. Thanks. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the, the witness and the testimony that was the life of Isaac Watts. I thank you for the way his work continues to bless and serve the church even to this day. And I pray for these worship leaders and these pastors. I know the burden of their work. I know they're, they're longing to love and to serve the church. I know the gifting that you've given them to give them a voice, to give them a love of music, a love of your creative gifts, and a love of your word. And I pray, Father, that these, these next couple of days would be restoring, would be refreshing, would be renewing for their vision, that you would bless them and through them bless their churches with a more profound, more clear, and more, more hopeful testimony of your gospel in a dark, dark world. Amen.